I have a question for you. What makes a speaker truly amazing? What is it about this person, this, this man or this woman, that when they get up, they just command your attention? They just kind of wrap you in, and, and you're just kind of caught up and, and hanging on every word that they say. Is it because they have this dynamic or, or powerful voice? Is it because they're, I don't know, eloquent or loquacious? I don't know. You can look that word up. That's a good one. I had to do that. Um, is it is it just the fact that they're winsome or they have a certain charisma about them? You know, or maybe it's it's that they're it's just really relevant. It's like they always know exactly what I'm thinking, exactly where I'm at. They've got these perfect illustrations that make things abundantly clear. I mean, what is it about this person that when they speak that you stand amazed? That you hang on every word? Is this some trick of the trade that can be learned or conjured up? Or is there something else? Is there something more? What is it about this person that when he speaks, you listen? You know, today... We're looking at Mark, and Mark is going to be talking about Jesus' teaching. Jesus was one who spoke with authority and left the crowds amazed, left them astonished, and left them bewildered and dumbfounded as to what to do. But Jesus does it not because of his eloquence, not because he has some charismatic personality or because he's very persuasive, but because he speaks truth. The crowds were astonished, not because of signs and miracles and wonders that he had performed, but that he speaks with authority. It's not some illusion of power that he presents, but actual, real, authoritative power. And it left the crowd stunned. You know, last week we, we looked at, at Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, and we heard that when Jesus called, you had these early disciples that they got up and they left everything and followed him. I mean, Andrew, Simon, James, and John. I mean, Jesus comes and he says, Hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they drop their entire lives and they follow after him. It shows that he had the authority over people. Well, today we'll see that Jesus has the authority to teach. That he has the authority over evil spirits. And as a result of that, we, like his immediate hearers, ought to respond in awe and amazement. Astonished not because of what he said or because of what he can do, but because of who Jesus is. We should be caught up and amazed by who Jesus is. So let's pray and then we'll read. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and we ask that this morning our eyes would be open all the more to the truth and beauty of Jesus, that we may marvel at who he is. God, we, we ask that, that your spirit might work in us so that we might stand in awe and in fear of, of him, that we won't just be caught up in what he can do or maybe some things that happened in his life, but, but that we would see, we would truly see and understand and respond to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that that would change our lives. So God, we ask that, that you do this work in us as we study your word together. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we're looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. 
That's page 836 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. 836. And uh, I'm going to read that now. It says, And they, Jesus and his disciples, went to Capernaum. And immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. The first truth that we see from this text is that Jesus has the authority to teach. In Mark, Jesus made his first appearance in verse 9, showing up as an adult to be baptized at the Jordan uh, by John. So he would have been sort of further south, close to the Dead Sea, not too far from Jerusalem, not too far from Jericho, an important aspect where where John had been out preaching baptism and repentance. And he's he's there, he's obeying the will of his father and doing that. Um, And God tears open the heavens and he proclaims Jesus to be his son. And then suddenly Jesus gets scooted out, led by the Holy Spirit, out into the wilderness to take on Satan, to be tempted by Satan, and to gain cosmic victory over him. Then in verse 14, we see that Jesus makes his way back north, back to his homeland, back to his home region of Galilee. And there he begins his ministry, right? And what does he start out doing? He starts out preaching the gospel of God. He said, you know, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is Jesus' first message. As he continues, in verse 16, he's making his way now along the Sea of Galilee, where he comes across these fishermen, and he calls them to become his disciples, to become fishers of men, right? And they they pick up, they leave everything, and they follow Jesus. And now, here in verses 21 through 28, we see Jesus making his way to Capernaum, which means village of Nahum, for all you guys who happen to like Greek and Hebrew. It's a city alongside the Sea of Galilee. And what does he do? He teaches. He goes into the synagogue, a place where where the people of Israel gathered together weekly to, to receive instruction from the Old Testament, from the law of God, right? He did it on the day of rest, the Sabbath, and he's teaching. Now, sometimes we get confused about, you know, the, the mode of worship back then. You know, we think about the temple in Jerusalem and how people went to offer their sacrifices there, but they didn't regularly go to Jerusalem. Oftentimes, they only went once a year, but they did meet regularly, like weekly at least, in the synagogue to receive instruction from the Lord uh, through His Word. So J- Jesus enters the synagogue on the day. And he's preaching. He's teaching. I mean, this is basically the modern-day church, if you will. 
And he didn't go there to exercise this unclean spirit. He went there to teach. All right? That, that, uh, that exorcism was a byproduct of his teaching ministry. Now, I gave you this context because I want to emphasize what Jesus is really all about. Jesus is not about showing himself in power through signs and miracles and wonders, but through the ministry of the word. I mean, Mark is intentional to say, hey, listen, the first three accounts we he gives of Jesus' ministry is that Jesus preached the, the gospel, that Jesus called the disciples, and that he taught from the word of God in the synagogue. This is significant. We can't miss this. Oftentimes we get hung up on emotionalism and, and wanting to see some display of power to put our faith in. But the reality is, Jesus was not about that. Jesus didn't come doing miracle, miracle, miracle. Jesus came preaching, calling, teaching. And the result, the byproduct of that was miracle. The miracle is just the attestation of what he was really there to do. Which was preach the gospel. And to call people to follow him. That's what Jesus is about. And I don't want you guys to miss that. Because sometimes we, we look for the wrong things. Where the sufficiency lies in the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel has not changed. Jesus was about that. And that's what we need to be about. He's there. He's preaching from the Old Testament of the things concerning himself. He didn't come to put the power of the Holy Spirit on display. He came preaching, calling, and teaching to put the Word of God on display. And the result of that was that the power of the Spirit was manifest in this exorcism. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So, this is big. Jesus came to tell us who He is, why He came, and what it means to follow Him. This is Jesus' ministry. Alright? If Jesus just came and He performed miracle after miracle after miracle, we might be stunned, we might stand in awe and wonder, but apart from Him communicating, apart from Him revealing Himself through the Word, through telling you what He's all about, then those, those miraculous signs and wonders might cause bewilderment, might cause amazement, but we have nothing to ground them in. Right? When we can draw our own conclusions that way. But Jesus makes it clear. He's all about preaching the Gospel of God. He came to preach the truth and the authority. And the result is when that truth and authority of the Word of God comes to bear on people's lives, that it comes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the rejection of the gospel, then there will be dramatic consequences, right? There will be. Maybe it's not an exorcism, but lives are forever changed. And that in itself is a miracle. So, I had to lay that out there. I want to make that clear. Jesus is about the ministry of the Word. The purpose of the seven-verse account is not simply to tell you of an instance in which Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. I know that many of you have Bibles and you have subheadings there at the top of this passage, and that's what it says. Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. Well, that's just not a good definition. Yes, it's true, but Mark's whole point in putting it here, like all of Mark's gospel, is to establish the authority of Jesus, the authority of Christ. That's what he's about. And this is just one evidence of it. So look again at verses 21 through 22. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. 
And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Before the demon ever spoke up, before he ever chimed in, before he ever revealed himself, the crowd was what? They were astonished and they were amazed. And why? Because Jesus taught with authority. They were amazed at his word ministry. Not by this miraculous account. He taught them not like the scribes. Now the scribes were sort of the modern day lawyers slash Old Testament scholars. They were the guys that were to know everything there is to know about the Old Testament. They lived it. They breathed it. They spent all their lives pouring over it. And they were to instruct people from it. They were to judge according to it. They were this weird conglomeration of teacher, professor, uh, moralist, lawyer, and judge kind of all wrapped into one. If you had an issue, you went to the scribes to kind of figure out what the law said about this and what we were to do about it. When you gathered in the synagogue, it was often the, the scribes who were the ones responsible for interpreting the Old Testament so that the people could understand and correctly apply. All right? You didn't get bigger or better than the scribes in the Old Testament or in that time. No one knew the word at that time more than the scribes. But yet Jesus comes in and what happens? People stand amazed because he taught with authority, not like these scribes. As Jesus enters in, I mean, their, their minds are blown. He was speaking uh, words like, like nothing that they had ever heard before. I mean, this, his words were truth. His words had authority. And the crowds knew it. They recognized it. They couldn't deny it. And so they were astonished by it. But we need to keep something in mind. Jesus wasn't, he didn't get up there and he didn't speak a new word. It's not like he came up and he told them something new, something that they had never heard before. He was preaching from the same texts. But he was preaching in a way that was revealing, that was eye-opening, that was authoritative, that caused their hearts to burn and their minds to stir and It was like nothing that they had ever heard before. Not because his words were new, but because they had a new application. He was fulfilling those things. Do you remember from from Luke, Luke giving his account in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus gets up and he preaches from Isaiah 61, and he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the kind of thing that Jesus was doing. He was still preaching, he was still holding to the forms, to the traditions, but it, it was eye-opening, it was new, it was authoritative, because he spoke with power, he spoke with authority, and the word became alive to them, and their hearts burned within them, and the crowd stood amazed, because Jesus taught with authority. And this is evidenced, second, by Jesus' authority over evil spirits. It said the crowd stood astonished at his teaching. As they were standing there, the truth that Jesus spoke actually forced an evil spirit to reveal himself. Okay, look at verses 23 through 24. It says that immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. As soon as Jesus finished teaching, as soon as he he sat down, this demon jumps up. 
This demon is forced. He's compelled by the truth and the authority of what Jesus has said to reveal himself. No longer can he remain in hiding. No, No longer can he just kind of conceal himself. The truth forced him to be revealed. And he cries out. Now the text doesn't say that he came rushing in, right? Like he's some evil spirit that's getting ready to do battle with the Son of God. No, he was there. He was there. And as Jesus spoke the truth, he had no choice but to reveal himself. So, it's interesting to note here that this man was in the synagogue, right? We don't know how long he was there. We don't know how many times he had been there. But he was there in the synagogue. And it's interesting to note that the demons are all too pleased to remain in places of worship where worship is corrupted where the truth of God is not properly proclaimed and applied, or not applied at all, where the glory of God is denied because people put their focus on all the wrong things, put their focus on the forms rather than the reality, and their hearts aren't changed by it. Demons are all too pleased to dwell there. They're all too pleased to happily participate. Now, I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm not, I'm not one of those kind of like, get all spooky by the paranormal kind of guys, you know. I mean, most of the time I'm just like, dude, you're, you're, for, you're, you're causing yourself to believe something that's not even real. I don't get scared by that. I mean, like, for example, we, I work at the Y, right? And, every, like, there are people that work at the Y, and they think that the Y is haunted. It's an old building. But I'm like, it's a boiler, okay? Those, those dings you hear is the boiler. And so I, I'm happy to walk through there, you know, in the middle of the night, and, and the basement's kind of weird looking and all that stuff, but it doesn't freak me out. But... I, I, I do have to say that when I was in India, man, I kind of get a glimpse of this. I mean, we, as we were walking through India, we were walking past shrines, we were walking past idols. We went and we visited the Kali Temple, and uh, man, it was dark. Um, and I, I haven't really experienced anything like it. It's hard to describe. In fact, one of the guys that went with me the first time, Ryan, He'd been to over 40 different countries, and he said, man, there's nothing like India. India is the darkest place that I have ever been. There's something really, really kind of creepy, spooky about that, you know? I mean, and it's weird to think about it, Quinn. I mean, we're walking through the Kali Temple. We're seeing all this false worship happen. And to think that we may have actually had interchanges with the demonic. you ever think about that? I mean... That weighs heavy on my heart. We may have shook some guy's hand or had a conversation with somebody and and not known. Because demons are all too pleased to dwell in places where worship is corrupted. Where the truth is not spoken or proclaimed and implied. But it doesn't just happen in places like India at the Kali Temple. I mean, that's an extreme account. It can also happen in places where even the Bible is read as it was here in the synagogue. I mean, think about how often this man sat there, maybe for weeks or months or years, as these scribes spoke the Word of God, as they read it, as they misinterpreted it, as they focused on the external forms of worship rather than the reality of the heart. I mean, think about that. Does that not blow your mind? Now, don't look around and kind of wonder, is there demonic here? You know, do I need a, you know, it's like, uh, I hope that's not the case because I do know this. Like, I, I don't know how active, you know, 
evil spirits are in the world today. I'm not going to give you a, a flat answer on that. I just don't know. But I do know this. When the gospel is proclaimed in truth and with power, just like in this account, demons will be revealed. I can't say that without absolute authority. They cannot stay hidden. And what you see here is in a desperate attempt to try to gain advantage over Jesus, this demon cries out and he tries to identify Jesus to try to gain authority over him. Right? This naming is a way to kind of gain advantage. And he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And in that, the demon identifies both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Did you notice that? He identifies the humanity and saying, this is Jesus of Nazareth. We know this guy. But he also recognizes who Jesus is. That this is the Holy One of God. The one who has authority to do whatever he wishes to the demon. Have you come to destroy us? That's real authority. The demon recognizes it. The one who has power to destroy, not just him, but all of Satan's servants. Because the demon was speaking for all of us. He said, have you come to destroy us? Not have you come to destroy me. Have you come to destroy us? They know that their time is coming. They know that it's at hand, and there's nothing that they can do about it. But here's the amazing thing. As I thought about this passage, this evil spirit knows who Jesus is because he was created by him. This evil spirit once stood and saw Jesus in his heavenly glory as a holy angel. He was once part of the minions that surrounded the throne of God before Satan and his cohort rebelled against God. He was there. He saw it. And he knew. And what you see is that every time evil spirits come into contact with Jesus, they know right who he is. This is the Son of God. This is the Holy Son of God. They know it. They can't deny it. There's nothing that they can do about it. They identify him to be the Son of God. And like I said before, you know, if you take Mark, you can really divide it in half. Mark 1 through 8 focuses on who Jesus is. 9 through 16 is why he came. And as we looked so far in Mark chapter 1, Jesus has been proclaimed. His identity has been declared twice, right? The first one happened at his baptism when God himself tore open the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the second came from a demon who shrieked out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The first two declarations of Jesus' identity came from both heaven and hell. Both heaven and hell attested to Jesus' reality. These scribes, who knew the law, who spent their lives pouring over the Old Testament and had this, they longed for the coming of the Messiah and were supposed to be the ones to herald His coming, didn't know. The Pharisees didn't know. The Herodians didn't know. The Sadducees didn't know. Jesus' own family didn't know. His followers weren't sure. But yet God knew who He was and the demons knew who He was. That's just amazing. The demons know who Jesus is and they tremble. 
They fear because they know who He truly is, that He is pure, that He is good, that He is just, that He is holy, and that He is righteous. They tremble because they know that they have rebelled against Him. They know that they have rejected Him. They know that they have tried to live their lives apart from Him as if this is their world and they are God's. The essence of sin. Rebellion in in attitude, in thought, in word, in deed. They know that they have rejected Him and they're terrified because they know that that they deserve judgment. And that it is coming. And it is coming by His hand. They know that He is the one to judge them. And so they fear. And they fear because they're powerless against it. There is nothing that they can do. We'll look at another account where Jesus confronts a demon. And He says, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? They know their time has come. And they fear it. They fear it. But oh, that we would have the same fear. Oh, that our eyes might be open to our rebellion against the one true and living God. That we might recognize that that we have rejected Him. That we have rejected our good and perfect Creator. That we have tried to live life without Him. That we have tried to live as if this is my world and I'm God. God, I don't really need you. And when I do, I'll come and let you know but not independence upon Him. If only we would recognize, like the demons, that our sin rightly deserves everlasting punishment from God. We don't often recognize that. We give lip service to it, but it doesn't really shape our hearts and our minds. If we would only recognize that that it is coming, and that He would be perfectly just and right to punish us, that we might suffer the wrath of God and that we have no power to do anything about it, then, and maybe then, we would truly glory in the cross because we see the justice and the mercy of God come together in amazing ways. You can't do that if you don't have fear. You can't do that if you don't recognize that you're sinners. You don't do that if you don't really believe that you deserve everlasting punishment. You will never glory in the cross apart from it. Give lip service to it. Yeah, kind of be thankful, but not be changed by it. Not glory in it. And though there is no hope for the evil spirits, there is hope for us. Because Jesus came and lived a perfectly obedient life, a life that you and I could not live. And He gave that life up as a sacrifice for our sins. He died on the cross to pay the ransom that our sin deserves. He rose on the third day to give us hope that there is reconciliation, that there is eternal life, that we can be restored to God, that we can be united with Him again. We're no longer slaves to our sin. We're freed from that. We can rest in His sufficient sacrifice so we don't need to torment. Can I stand before God? No, you can't. Christ did. And that's yours. His righteousness is now yours if you repent and believe. Guys, this is awesome. This is amazing. But you can't have it if you don't recognize that you're a sinner. If you don't recognize that you deserve everlasting punishment. And if you don't recognize that you can do nothing about it. You've got to have that. Only then will we respond with true repentance and faith and follow after Him, willing to leave everything behind. 
which is what he's calling us to. The truth of Jesus sets captives free. Though the demons desperately tried to get the upper hand by identifying Jesus, verses 25 and 26 says that Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. This is no power encounter, okay? Jesus didn't have to perform any incantations here. He didn't have to well things up, like emotions up. He didn't need mantras. He didn't need dimly lit candles. He didn't need incense or smoke to be able to do this. Jesus simply spoke, and the demon obeyed. Simply spoke, and the demon obeyed. He he said, you know, zip it and get out, and the demon did. The demon tried pointlessly to fight against it for like two seconds, and then was gone. Jesus spoke, and the demons obeyed. This is not, Mark's not giving this account to highlight some sort of cosmic spiritual battle taking place between roughly equivalent forces of good and evil here. Mark is saying this to clearly show that Jesus has all authority over evil spirits. That this is unquestionable. That Jesus can merely speak and this demon obeys. A demon who has the power to control this poor soul cannot stand against Jesus. Satan's minions cannot... I mean, we already talked about... I mean, Mark doesn't even give lip service to Satan. He's like, yep, Jesus went out to the desert, was tempted by Satan, Jesus won, end of story. And he spends more time talking about how Jesus is cleaning up Satan's trash, like this guy right here. That's amazing. That's power. That's authority. And it's simply spoken. So we don't need to leave... And live in fear of this, but trust in the authority of Christ. This is an unquestionable display of the authority of Christ. He speaks, and even the demons bow down. And as a result, we are left with the same response of the crowd, as the crowd. We, they are third, amazed by his authority. Now, if the crowd was astonished by Jesus' teaching before this unclean spirit just kind of chimed in, you can imagine how much greater their amazement would be after Jesus spoke and this demon split the scene. In verses 27 and 28, it says, And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands, and even the unclean, even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. In their bewilderment, the, 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 the people, they started debating. Like, what is this? What's going on? What's happening here? And some were like, man, this is a new teaching with authority. And others were like, no way, you're crazy. And they're fighting back and forth about this. But all of them are shocked. All of them are sort of in dismay. They don't even really know what to do. And again, it's not that Jesus was contradicting what they had heard before, but that he was speaking in a fulfilling way. He was the fulfillment of all that was, had been prophesied before in the Old Testament. And they recognized that in part. But, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but they, instead, you know, he, he changes things. It's not about past traditions, right? But it's about a present reality. Jesus came in power, right? He came in authority. 
They're now confronted. Instead of looking back at, at the Old Testament in sort of an abstract way like they had done in the past and kind of continued in their routine forms of worship, now they're faced with the reality of all that has been said. And they're shocked and dismayed by it. I mean, and the reality is that the Word came alive. He spoke the truth in power so that lives were changed by it. Right in front of him. This man's life was forever changed. Again, think about how long he sat there and listened to the preaching of the Word. Just think about how long that demon... They, they entertained a demon in their midst and had no idea until Jesus came speaking in power. And they could, and the problem is they, they didn't have the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to understand the word. It's like Caleb was saying earlier. It's like you, you can read these words. You can understand them as words. But it takes beholding the face of Jesus Christ to be transformed by it. It takes that. They had teaching but without authority. And these evil spirits could care less. But no more. No more. Jesus had come preaching, calling, and teaching the word in power of the Holy Spirit so that the truth and the authority of God are clearly revealed. It can't be denied. The truth and authority of Christ forced him out of his hiding. His control had ended. He was silenced. He was cast out by the word of Christ. He had no choice but to obey his authority. And the crowd couldn't deny it. They, they couldn't, there's nothing they could do about it. They were stunned. They were bewildered. And they began to tell others of his fame so that his name was spread throughout the region of Galilee. I mean, they were going out and telling people what had just happened. But I wonder this. I wonder how many of them, they saw what had happened. They stood there in amazement at the authority of Jesus' teaching. They stood there in shock and awe as they saw this man, this demon fleeing this man, and this, now, this man now be, being given freedom, maybe for the first time in his life, many of them went out and, and told others about Jesus. But they themselves were not changed by it. We know that for a fact. That not many actually received the gospel in power. Though many heard it. It's not simply enough for us to be amazed at what we read in Scripture. Right? It's not just simply enough for us to be amazed at certain accounts. And Jesus, wow, He did some amazing things. That's cool. I'm going to go tell others about these crazy things that Jesus did. This is unbelievable. And to not be changed by it. It's all too easy for us to be amazed and then to go and forget. To walk out of here and not be changed. So amazement in itself is not enough. We need something more. We need something real. We need something tangible that's going to cause us to to really get this. To really be changed by this. Should we be amazed? Absolutely. Unquestionably, we should be amazed. But amazement in itself, astonishment in itself is not enough. We need to be amazed by who He is. And as we recognize who He is, not what He can do or what He says, but who He is, then we see ourselves for who we really are. Sinners. 
And when we see ourselves for who we really are, then we accept the fact, I deserve everlasting punishment. And that causes us to fear. You see, we needed both what the crowd had and what the demons had. We need amazement and fear. Fear because we deserve the just wrath of God. We deserve it. I deserve everlasting torment for my sin. And I know that I have rejected and rebelled against God. I know that I've tried to live my life without Him. I know that I've actively rebelled against His clear commands. I know that. And that's what I deserve. And amazement, true amazement, comes in on the other side. Not by what Jesus said or what Jesus did, but what Jesus did on the cross. That's where it truly becomes amazing. That's where the justice and mercy of God meet. And only then can we stand in awe as we fear. But the awe must come out of the fear. Not just awe apart from it. We need to be changed by it. And so I wonder how many of us, we've sat in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we've read the Word, and we haven't really been changed by it. There have been points in our lives where we may even have been amazed, may, may even have been shocked and, and astonished and awestruck by something that happened, but we were never really changed by it. Well, it was because maybe we've lost the fear. Now, there is no fear after we rest in Christ, right? But we're still captured and gripped by that reality that that is us, right? I'm not suggesting that you stay in torment and doubt, okay? Don't hear that but that we need that real sense of awareness of our own sin and judgment before God, and that fear drives us to the cross. We need that. It's only then that we will repent and believe. It's only then that we will leave and follow. It's only then that we will heed what Jesus has already taught us in these first 28 verses as he preached the gospel of God, as he called disciples, as he taught in the synagogues, all doing the same thing, preaching about himself. We need to know who Christ is. We need to love Him for it. And so, my question is, will you respond today to the authority of Christ? Will you believe, truly believe, that He is the Son of God? If you do, it will change your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we come before You acknowledging that you created us, that you have made us, that you continue to sustain and uphold us. There's nothing that we have that you didn't give. We don't draw our breath by our own ability, and even if we could, you're the one who gives us the ability to draw it. You give us the air that we breathe. God, everything is owed to you. God, forgive us for how we have rejected that. How we have made much of ourselves. How we have tried to live our lives without you. Or to make you a servant to us. Rather than recognizing your authority and being willing to submit to it. That we are sinners. We have rejected you. We deserve your wrath. We praise you that in your grace and your mercy you didn't leave us in it. 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God in upholding his justice, but displaying his infinite love. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for this testimony that he is authority, that he has the authority to teach, not because he teaches like the scribes, but what has more authority than the word of God that they taught than God himself? It shows that he is God, that he has your authority. And it and he testifies to that by, by cleansing this man of his evil spirit. Now freed to live for the first time. God, I pray that we'll see that, that we will want that. That we will know that we don't need to be slaves to sin any longer. That we don't need to be bowing down to ourselves, but we now have the freedom to obey Christ, to leave and to follow, to repent and to believe and to receive the abundant joy and blessing of following Him, not materially, but spiritually, knowing that it is forever ours that we are now children of God, adopted sons and daughters, that we can cry, Abba, Father. God, I pray that we'd do that. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.